Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's conversation. And I'm speaking today with Drs. Ronnie Henrik Anderson and Yanni Lotti. Dr. Anderson is a senior university lecturer of North American studies at the University of Helsinki, and Dr. Lotti is an Academy of Finland research fellow also at the University of Helsinki, and together they are the co-editors of a new book entitled Finnish Settler Colonialism in North America, Rethinking Finnish Experiences in Transnational Spaces, which came out with the Helsinki University Press just last year in 2022. Uh, Welcome, both of you, to the New Books Network. Good to have you here. Thank you for having us. Thank you for, um, for my part as well. Um, why don't we begin, as we always do on this show, by just hearing a little bit about who each of you are as uh, authors and as uh, scholars and just as people. Can you each just tell me a bit about your background? And what I'm particularly interested in is how each of you became interested in history. Okay, so if I'll start... Uh, I'll, I've been interested in history ever since I was a kid, so that's nothing new. How I came into North American Studies was basically studying history at the University of Tampere here in Finland and um, starting to do some North American Studies topics as well. And I found North American Studies really interesting and, and the methods and, and, and approaches were kind of cool because you could kind of combine all of my interests like geography, history, cultural studies, religion and so forth in North American Studies and then going into indigenous studies very, quite early on. And this Finnish history and Finnish immigration history is actually quite late-born interest of mine. So uh, maybe the newest, if you will. But I've been working on indigenous uh, people for many, many years, especially the Lakota on the uh, northern plains. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was also thinking about looking looking back. Uh, it kind of seems obvious now. Uh, as a kid, I was very much interested in westerns and and playing with western. Uh, toys and look, uh, reading Western comics, and all that kind of stuff. Of course, of course, I didn't realize that that can be made into a career then. Uh, but looking at now, I'm closing my fifties. F- uh, it kind of makes sense that I ended up doing what I've been doing. Uh, American West has been my my primary interest, especially the Southwest borderlands and the Apaches. And the U.S. Army in the 1800s. There, did my dissertation on that at the University of Helsinki back in 2009 already, and, and been kind of working on those those topics of settler colonization, the U.S. Southwest for many years as well. While Lakani is focused on on the Great Plains, my f- focus is more on the on the Southwest. But we are both kind of part of this phenomenon in Finland. There's this quite a few of historians actually doing North American West here in Finland these days. And it all kind of is a result of, of one professor who was who was now retired, Marco Henriksson, who who's kind of this 
pathfinder here in Finland in this this field. Uh, but that's kind of my story. I've been doing these topics quite a long time. And also like Rani, Finnish migration history is kind of a late-born interest of, of, of mine. And I can talk more about that in a, in, in a short while as well. Well, that's actually what I wanted to, to hear about next is is what brought you to this particular topic. Why this question of Finnish immigration and the, the Finnish experience in North America? And specifically, why look at uh, this question of Finnish immigration experience through the lens of settler colonialism specifically? Well, the last question is easy because nobody else has done it. Uh, uh, but yeah, I, I've been studying settler colonization for many years already and 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 mostly in the north american west u.s southwest borderlands especially but lately i've been trying to kind of broaden my perspective uh as a historian uh, towards more like global history transnational transimperial history and those kind of things and part of that interest uh, has been a focus on german southwest africa for example and settler colonization there and also this Arctic uh, corridor that Finland had from 1920s to 1940s called Petsamo. There's this uh, area that Finns had for two decades and tried to make into a Finnish settler colony uh, and assimilate the Sami people there and, and all the usual replacement that goes along uh, with settler colonization. So how I come to this book? It's basically combining my interest in settler colonization around the world and my background in the North American West. And why not combine those two and look at the, the, the Finnish experience in, in North American context, because nobody else has done it before. Uh, there's a lot of Finnish migration history, and I don't feel that I'm an expert on Finnish migration history in any part, sense of the word. But I realized, and I know better now, that Finns have been studied in isolation from broader colonization processes in North America. Finns have not been connected to settler colonization in North America. And that was kind of got us into this book, the idea that somebody needs to get the ball rolling, basically. Somebody needs to be the first, somebody needs to get things started. And this is kind of what I imagine as, as, as a start in this process is no, it's by no means a final word, but it's the first kind of systematic in, investigation of the Finnish experience within a settler colonial framework in North America. Want to add up something, Rani, there? Well, <clears throat> yeah, uh, maybe only that I personally came to this uh, Settler colonial and Finns within that context, uh, doing a. I had a research project funded by the Kone Foundation, where we studied uh, the Finnish community on, on a small island, Sugar Island in Michigan, right by the Canadian border, and and uh, we did a large network analysis of the Finnish community there, and just started to realize that okay, uh, we are talking about these Finns and their experiences in North America, and there's always the same narrative that comes up, but we don't talk about them or historians do not talk about them as colonialists and and that's where it kind of started to dig deeper and then I uh, Janne and I had a meeting just out of you know uh, other coincidence and we started to talk about this and we'll, well this is a topic that somebody should write about or make a book about so yeah Janne said why don't we do it I said okay sure so it's sometimes it's happenstances that that bring people together and, and things start to happen and this is an important uh, kind of a new opening in, in Finnish discussion about settler colonialism and Finnish role in the larger colonial colonialism uh, debate, if you will. Yeah, is, and of course, Rani and I have we have known each other for many years, and we have taught together, and we have organized conferences together, and we 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 this kind of opportunity to actually do a book together, uh, an edited volume, uh, but also like Rani mentioned, want to add up something that that. Uh, until the last couple of years, there has been very little on, on studies on, on colonialism in the Finnish historical context. Usually, uh, colonialism in Finland is perceived as something that happened far away and a long time ago, and it ended. And that was kind of the perception, uh, uh, prevalent perception a couple of decades ago 
in, in, in other parts of the world as well. But now we realize that colonialism has not ended, that the, we, are, we are still living in, in, in an era where colonial heritage and durabilities and legacies are very much part of, the, of the, how the world is organized these days, how the, how the world is uh, functioning these days. And in, even in, in Finland these days, like in other Nordic countries, there's been more and more scholars studying colonialism and Finland uh, in different contexts, within the Finnish borders, uh, studying Finns in other, uh, at the service of other empires in South Africa, in, in Belgian Congo, or German Southwest Africa, for example, where there were many Finnish missionaries there. But nobody has really connected the Finnish migration histories in North America to studies of colonialism. And we kind of saw an opening there uh, uh, and tried to kind of chip in uh, at, at that uh, all for our own part. So it almost sounds like you, you kind of have uh, a couple different audiences in mind here. On the one hand, you're telling American scholars, you know, like, hey, pay, pay attention to, to Finnish uh, immigration when you're talking about settler colonialism in North America. That this is an important story, too. At the same time, you're talking to, to Finnish scholars and, and people in Finland saying, hey, we have a history of colonialism as well that we need to be paying attention to as well. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think you're right about that, especially I think when we started this book, the main audience would be would be Finnish people and Finnish scholars, because uh, there are a lot of people who have been, who, who have been studying here, Finnish immigration to North America. But they usually, it's a very traditional way of writing about this uh, um, uh, immigration. And, and um, the excuse for not being part of the colonial complex, if you want to use that expression, is that fin Finland at the time was part of the Russian Empire. So we did not have a... Um, governmental colonial process in a way so yeah. so we kind of we are excluded is the na old narrative we we didn't do it we were good guys we we just immigrated we didn't colonize anybody but settler colonialism gives us the framework to analyze that and discuss that too and also we want to of course uh, a lot of finnish uh, immigrant descendants in america are interested in in, in finnish history and why not the general audience as well while Finnish immigration immigration numbers are not people migrating maybe not that great as some others, but still had a great impact on on certain areas in North America. So this was a, a almost wholly new topic for me, which are often my favorite kind of books to cover on this show. I love uh, the, the excuse to learn a bunch of new stuff about something that, that I wasn't familiar with before. And while I don't usually ask my guests all that much about historiography when, when they come on the show, I am a little bit curious about the process of putting together this edited volume. Um, how did you decide on what scholars should contribute to this book? And I guess in a, in a broader sense, I'm wondering about what the sort of uh, landscape is. Uh, are there a lot of scholars that are working on questions like these, the, the history of Finnish people in North America or Finnish colonialism broadly? Uh, I think there... Go ahead. Well, there's a lot of scholars, as I said, who have studied immigration history, per se, as a, you know... Uh, looking at what Finns did in North America, part of labor movements and, and, and uh, working class people. There's a um, new, younger generation of scholars, younger than us, who are looking at broader contexts and, and different kinds of topics and using different methodologies to, to uh, explore that. And we wanted to tap into that source as well. We, we approached a lot of younger scholars to work with us who actually did and all, older as well. And uh, we approached many others who are not part of this book, who couldn't couldn't contribute for many reasons, time-wise and whatnot. But um, yeah, there is a there is a bunch of, of younger scholars who are doing a really interesting work right now. Yanni, you might want to elaborate on that. Yeah, that's true uh, as well. Uh, like you mentioned pre previously. Finns don't perceive themselves as colonizers, uh, and, and and this kind of historical perception like you already mentioned, it relates to us being a part of the Russian Empire until 1917. Uh, and when I was kind of getting into these topics of Finland and colonialism, one of the reactions I usually get is that it doesn't apply to us, or at least we were victims of colonization, being that we were victims of Russian colonization. Uh, uh, but that doesn't 
you can have many kind of different roles. Finns can apply many different kinds of historical roles in different historical contexts, and that's why it's so interesting to study Finns in at the service of other empires, as merchants, as 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 explorers, scientists, as settlers, trying to kind of they have access, they can gain uh, part of and become part of those cultures uh, themselves. But there's there's a lot of there's more and more scholars. I, I wouldn't say there are a lot of scholars working on, on these topics these days, but there are more and more, especially of the younger generation, who are questioning these old, very kind of conservative uh, migration histories here and, and asking new questions, connecting uh, Finnish experiences to these global uh, histories uh, of colonialism and its different shapes and forms and and that's we knew some of the people we wanted to be part of this book some of them luckily were able to contribute contribute others were too busy uh to to participate but we could kind of tap into our network and resources of of people and then some of those people knew other people who could become good contributors and that that's how this came about we were we were cont- contemplating a general call for papers at some point but then we realized that we actually have enough of 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 of, of, of by just tapping into our networks and connections here in Finland, trying to get a diverse group of people studying historical history from di- di- different, and North America from different per- perspectives. So this is very kind of multi, uh, multi-generational, uh, but also interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary collection of, of authors here, not only historians, but people who are from area and cultural studies, uh, from literature uh, and, and other, other fields as well. So before we we get too much further in our conversation, I'm I'm thinking that maybe we should we should kind of pause and define a term here. Can you provide? This is going to be not in. It's going to be a short question, but a difficult question. Can you maybe provide a bit of an overview as to what exactly you mean by settler colonialism? A lot of our listeners might have be kind of vaguely aware of what this term means. It gets thrown around a lot, but maybe we should just kind of take a second and actually define what exactly it is that we are talking about. How what is settler colonialism, and how is it different from other forms of colonialism. You're right that silicon uh, is kind of this trendy, or at least it, it has been for a while, it's kind of trendy, trendy term to throw around, uh, trendy topic. I've been thinking about siliconization a lot, especially lately. I I'm, I'm just took over as the chief editor of the, of the journal Settler Colonial Studies uh, for Taylor and Francis. And, and, and as, as an editor, I, I kind of feel the need that I need to be on top of the field. I need I need to understand the field, uh, what silicon colonialism is. Uh, and there are a couple of way, different ways of, 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 of approaching it. But it's uh, to me, it's, it's a form of colonialism that goes beyond what typical colonialism does. Typical colonialism is about exploitation of resources, extraction of labor. Silicon colonization is more than that. It involves both of those things as well. But silicon is about it's about land. It's about replacement, substitution. It's about going into somebody else's land and making it your own. So that's basically what siliconism is. It's about uh, a contest for land. It's about native elimination, uh, replacement of those who are already there by a new set of peoples. And as part of that process, silicon is also about claiming settlers as indigenous. It's about, and this happens usually through narrations, through stories, because settlers are new to the place. Uh, they just need, they have this urge to create narratives that that kind of make their claim for the for the land more substantial. So basically, we sellers don't just say that we just got here uh, and took this land, but rather they make claims that uh, this land made us and we made this land. So as if, as if history starts with the settlers arriving, that there's nothing before that. This kind of very kind of arrogant one way or way of approaching the past but silicon is, is, is that's that's what silicon is it's a, it's about taking the land and making claims on that land that you belong to that particular place 
So Settler, Settler is very different than Migrant. Migrant is, is a person who moves into somebody else's land and adopts, uh, assimilates, tries to kind of blend in. Of course, that doesn't mean that he or she uh, forgets his or her old culture. But Settler goes to somebody else's land and takes over, makes it his or her own. Uh, and replaces those who are already there. So settler and migrant are very kind of different things. So that's my understanding of settler colonization. A form of colonialism that aims to replace people who are already there and make the land uh, their own. Ronnie, anything you want to add to, to Yanni's pretty, pretty thorough definition there? No, that was actually a good definition and a difficult concept. Yeah, one thing that I could add, one part of that process is also place naming, and I'm pretty intrigued about naming places, and that's of course a big debate in in North America right now, what what place names we are using. But like in the cover of our book, you can see Finnish uh, town names in an American map, map of Michigan. And that's part of the process too, to make the place familiar by renaming it. There's Toivola, there is, there's actually a place called Finland in Minnesota, just to make it familiar and make it your own and make you belong into that particular place, even through place name. So that, that is something that intrigues me a lot. Yeah, that's, that's very much part of that process as well. I was visiting Namibia uh, last fall and there are towns called Svakotmund or Luderitz, there, there's old German place names. Uh, there are mountains named after Germans there still, and, and and of course Germans haven't been the rulers there for hundred years, uh, but the German settlers are still there. Their descendants are still there, and they are very kind of formidable part of that society. So settlers are trying to make their claims uh, through place naming, and sometimes even if the formal settlerization ends or fails. The settlers still stay and they still hold that kind of narrative and, and that kind of power, which is a kind of very interesting uh, phenomenon as well. Can you describe a bit about the Finnish experience in North America in kind of a very broad sense? I'm thinking about questions like, uh, where were Finnish people arriving uh, when, when they came to North America? What were some of the hubs of immigration? How many Finnish people were coming to these places? When were they arriving? And then again, kind of broadly speaking, what were their experiences like? I mean, is it even possible to generalize in, in asking a question like this? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question in the sense that that's something that the Finnish uh, immigration to North America narrative have always been like. It's about generalizations that people come and they become part of the land and they get along really well with the uh, with the natives. Uh, whether it's the first colonies in in Delaware in sixteen was it sixteen thirties or forties when the first Finns came over through through Sweden and then then uh, to the United States. Well, not the United States then, of course, but North America or the British colonies. But it's been part of the narrative that they had the similar experience. And later on, late the 19th century, early 20th century, they came to mostly to Michigan, Minnesota uh, and the Northwest Coast, where they would be part of the labor movements and, and working in the mines or in, in forestry industry and so on, which is all, uh, all true. But there are, of course, different experiences in different areas. And a lot of the Finns in Northwest Coast, for example, Oregon, Washington, they were uh, working in the fishing industry, as in the canning business. So these, but mostly labor, uh, low, how would I say, middle class and lower middle class people moving into to North America. Um, but to uh, kind of generalize, it's always difficult and unfair in a way. But I think this narrative about the benevolent Finn that we talk about in the bo- book as well, has been going on ever since that we get along with the natives. We did not take the land; we just became part of the country. It's a it, it's it's a story that still resonates today with many many people. Janne, would you like to comment? Uh, yeah, yeah. I was looking at, at this idea that that Finns try to make claims that they are exceptional. Uh, that they are exceptional uh, colonizers, although not colonizers at all. Um, but that when you look at this this narratives of of exceptionalism more closely, you realize that everybody did it. Uh, everybody wanted to 
be a good colonizer or not colonizer. So nobody wanted to be a bad colonizer, even at the time. Uh, and looking at German history, uh, looking at, of course, U.S. history, exceptionalism is, is a very strong narrative, uh, and it still resonates in many parts of, of, of the culture and the society and its history. And, and Finns also have this kind of tendency that, that we got... We were not that bad that we didn't take the land that we were we were good good colonizers we were good people and and this uh, uh, close relationship with nature that Finns uh, claimed they have was also seen as as making them more and more uh, affiliate and uh, have a better relationship with, with Native Americans and 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 of course in some cases that there was some hint of truth there there were some traditions uh, that that made them more closer to the native peoples than perhaps some other, other groups who came from more industrial and urban areas in Europe. Uh, because fin- Finns at the time were a very kind of rural society still, a hundred years ago. Most Finns lived in, in the countryside and, and they had kind of personal experience of, 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 of life in, in, the, in the countryside and how to deal with nature on a daily day basis, unlike people from Germany or England, where people have lived in cities for a couple of generations already. But yeah, that's, that's, that, that's the thing. Yeah, that, that's a big part, part of the narrative is that Finns were, you know, closer to the natives because we were, we have the sauna or the sweat lodge that, that many native people have still. And we would have similar ideas of how to be in, in the nature, with the nature and environment. And there's also the topic of, of, of um, um, let's not discuss that often, land ownership, the concept of land. Uh, that the, when Finns or Swedes, when they came in the 17th century, for example, when they made a treaty with the local native people about land, land, for example. So uh, the Finns and Swedes still allowed natives to maybe hunt on the land that was now Swed- Swedish or Finnish, whereas the British would not, no trespassing. The Finns had, had already then, as we still do, have a common right, uh, what, what is it called, common, common, Every man's right to land, so you can every go and hunt. Right, and yeah, you can, is, yeah, yeah. Every man's right, so you can go on big per- berries or mushrooms or whatever you want on anybody's land. You can camp anywhere, and that was already part of the culture then, which is very different from the British, who, when you make a treaty with the natives, this is your land, this is my land, you have no access to mine anymore. That did not apply. So that maybe is kind of a start to the narrative that we got along better with the indigenous people than than the rest, and some others. Johnny mentioned some other things. And there's a hint of truth to all of that. So let's not get rid of all the myths immediately. Just think about them a little bit more in in detail and in depth. I'm wondering if you can provide some specific examples on this question of uh, a settler, a Finnish settler and and native relationships. I thought this was a really fascinating part of the book that a couple of the essays um, in the collection addressed. So uh, what are some examples of the, the various kinds of relationships and interactions that Finnish settlers and indigenous people in North America had? I'm thinking about places like Michigan. Um, I know that there's there's a, a, a chapter that, that Ronnie, I believe you contributed to about, you mentioned earlier, Sugar Island. But there's other examples throughout the book as as well that are also very telling. Sure, uh, I can talk, talk about Sugar Line and, and, and Michigan, but but there 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 are many different places. Of course, Finns went. Uh, they took they took advantage of, of homestead acts. They took uh, the allotment era. Finns went to different places and tried to kind of build their societies, and they they actually ended up taking indigenous lands like other. Uh, European groups did as well, uh, and this happened. Of course, there's different historical context, different ways of of, of doing this. Some went to uh, lease uh, indigenous lands on the reservations, for example, in Minnesota. Uh, others uh, took part of the the, the land sessions in 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 other places. Uh, also in Arizona, for example, when the mining, the copper mining industry got going in the late 1800s, Finns were an essential part of the labor force of the of the big mining companies who took to lands or to, uh, to establish mines on Apache lands, for example. But Finns were also part of these processes in from British Columbia all the way to Cuba when the U.S. acquired Cuba in 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 the war against Spain. There were notions and, and attempts to establish Cuba as, as, a, as a white settler colony. And, and many Finnish people imagined that that would be one 
place where Finns could settle. There was this uh, newspaper uh, publisher called Ero Erko, uh, and Finland, of course, Finns, Finland was not independent yet. But he was very kind of this nationalist uh, mindset. He was imagining that the Russian influence would, would destroy Finnish uh, kind of this nationhood, that Finns needed a, a safe place to be Finns, essentially, and Cuba would be that place, but it didn't materialize. There were some attempts to establish Finnish colony there, but it didn't, it didn't last. Uh, and of course, Finns gained, gained independence in 1917, a decade or so after Erko imagined these Finnish colonies in Cuba. But there are different ways of, of approaching this. One of these interesting things is that Finland was not independent, uh, and but Finland had this growing sense of nationhood and, and this nationalist feeling. and and David would imagine that the Russians would never allow Finns to be an independent nation. So Finns needed to go somewhere else to become be Finns to fulfill fulfill their na- national kind of national feeling. And North America would allow that as 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 communities could thrive there and still retain their Europeanness. Of course, there were a lot of contradictions there, and and and. But I also noticed that the, the Germans had these kind of similar notions in the 1800s. There was even this word called Auslanddeutsche, which basically means Germans abroad. But wherever you were in the world, North America, West, Brazil, Shanghai, you were still a German. Uh, and, and you retained your Germanness, but of course that also was kind of a fabrication and assimilation, especially in North America, was was very strong among Germans and Finns in the in the in the few generations. Finns kind of melt the melting pot idea at worst, at least for some of them. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. I could add one interesting, when you uh, talk about Finnish and ind- indigenous people and relationships, there's a lot of uh, uh, people in Michigan and, and Minnesota and, and that area who call, call themselves Findians, so like Findians, and who are kind of <clears throat> descendants of uh, Finns and, and, and native people uh, marrying each other. And they are really proud, proud about that heritage, and they feel strongly about their Finnish heritage. They feel really strongly about their indigenous heritage. So these um, and, uh, smaller places, or let's say Sugar Island, kind of uh, place that is an island and easily defined, these intermarriages uh, happen a lot, and 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 um, Finns and, and indigenous people did get along pretty well in, in certain areas, and. And some of the articles in our book uh, talk about that too. So we are not only talking about antagonism and, and that kind of stuff. Also, uh, you know, in the um, artwork or Carl Cowboy, I think, who calls him uh, defines himself uh, fin, in Findian, if I am not mistaken, uh, proudly uh, exhibits this tradition in, in his artwork and uh, also in the images in the book. It's a very good point. I just want to add that silicolonization is about replacement and substitution. But of course, real life on an individual level is much more complex. And a lot of 
different types of interactions happen. Uh, people meet, people fall in love, people hate each other, whatever. This life happens. Uh, and of course, our theoretical models like silicolonization. And, and while it, it seems plausible and it, it makes sense, and it, as a historical process, we can see that this replacement and substitution is happening, native elimination is happening through warfare or boarding schools or whatever. But still there are nuances, there are still complex histories and complex uh, human experiences uh, and a lot of interaction and a lot of these kind of uh, fluid identities are being made and people Sometimes, at least, people can kind of relate to different cultures. Sometimes they need to choose whether they are Finns or Indians, but sometimes they can be Finn Indians, at least even after generations have, have, have passed. Ronnie, there's a chapter that you contributed to the end of the book that I thought was really interesting about uh, about Finnish immigrants and about two in in particular and this sort of like interplay and, and connection and cross section between uh, Finnish immigration and leftist politics in uh, the United States but also in Europe in the early 20th century and and how it relates to settler colonialism. Can you explain this story a bit and how it connects to the overall theme of the book? Well, I try to be brief. Yeah, this is an interesting. Uh, thing uh, it's uh, this chapter of ours looks at two Finnish immigrants called uh, Frank Altonen and Oskar Tokoi. The part of Oskar Tokoi was uh, is based and written by a friend of mine, a colleague, Dr. Rainer Smedman, who has been he's probably the leading uh, historian in Finland looking at Oskar Tokoi. So we wrote that together. And Frank, I'll, I'll start with uh, Frank Altonen though. He emerged in our research on on, on Sugar Island as a key figure. Uh, Finnish figure on the island. He, uh, he he moved to the U.S. in 1905, and he had been a, a he became a, po- a really powerful leftist politician and a- agitator, as they call him. He uh, went around the country to call for you know socialists to work together, and he, he said that the place of Finn is not in the mines. He needs to have a he is free on his land and so on. So really kind of nationalistic idea. And in 1915, he went to Sugar Island, Michigan, and he saw that as a free place. He completely bought into the narrative of free land and, you know, if you will, the American uh, expansion to the West, free land there to be taken. And he saw the land as a place where a Finnish community could thrive. And he he, he started to uh, develop the island and, and uh, invite other Finns to come to the island. And they actually made a huge success on the island replacing not only the native people, there had been other uh, French and other people for centuries on the island, but there were still uh, uh, native communities there, and the Finns just basically took over a lot of the island, cut the forests and made their it their home. It's it's like what happened happened in Finland too. I mean, cutting the forest was something Finns could do a lot and make it a farmland. So that's what Frank Alton and became a powerhouse on, on the island, and they still talk about him fondly on the island. And Oskar Tokoi then, uh, he was a, a non-politician in Finland, a socialist, never a communist, a socialist. But he, uh, he, he has an in- interesting family history. He was in the U.S. already in the 1870s, just after the so-called Plains Indian Wars, after Wounded Knee. And he was in the uh, Black Hills and he was in the Southwest. And the way he talks about the indigenous people is really paternalistic. He buys into this narrative that Finns are an exceptional minority and people who really deserve to take the land and and so on. He he comes back to Finland and becomes actually the first prime minister of Finland. But then a revolution happens, Finland becomes uh, independent. He gets a death sentence from after our own civil war from the winning party, the whites, and then also from the communists and flees to America illegally and meets Frank Alton and, uh, on Sousa and, in Sousa and Marie, Canada, and goes to the U.S. Uh, across the border without permission and becomes an illegal alien in the United States and befriends Frank Alton. And, and then they start these socialist uh, discussions about what is it to be a, a Finn in, in North America. And eventually, after World War II, they create help from America to Finland. Interesting histories, but how it ties to settler colonialism, Frank Altman actually settles and colonizes Sugar Island, whereas Oskar Tokoi goes from place to place in North America, meets native people, and kind of is a 
expression of the settler colonial sentiment, if you will. That's my, how would I, yeah, that's that's a good way to express it. He he really epitomizes the idea of what it is uh, to be a settler colonial Finn. So these uh, two interesting people per se, and then you bring them together and and and, and look at their histories in the uh, context of settler colonialism and socialism. It, it, it it's a different view on the whole immigration story, I think. There's another chapter toward the end of the book that, that really stood out to me about the migration of Sami people, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, to, to North America that, that I, again, found found really interesting. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about the Sami experience and what it means in the, the author's words to be, uh, you know, quoting the, the, article, the article here, to be both indigenous and settler in North America. I think the the article nicely captures this kind of fluid identity as this kind of paradox of, of settler colonization, where people can make claims for whiteness and then they can make claims for for indigenousness uh, at different parts, or, or different times, in different settings. The Sami arrived like the, the, the order of, of the article Eric Hiata. He he makes he makes, makes a great case here that the Sami arrived for the for the for the gold rush in Alaska for the reindeer they fought for their specific uh, skills in reindeer herding uh, and and transportation services for the for the gold rush and and at, so they arrived in the late 1800s more in the early 1900s and at the time the Sami people were not identified usually often as separate from Finns they, they were in, in North America. Many claimed identities as white, many passed as, as white in North America because whiteness was, was social power. It benefited the Sami to make claims for whiteness in North America. Of course, Sami situation here in Finland at the time was very much the opposite. They were being discriminated. They were targeted by a growing sentiment of assimilation. They were also seen as a vanishing race, like like Native Americans in North America. Here in Finland, they would imagine that the Sami would disappear and vanish in a generation or two when they met uh, white Finnish culture in, 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 in our northern parts today called Lapland. Uh, and, and, and in North America, they could kind of escape this, this situation that they were experiencing in Finland and become white. But then, like Erik Hieta here in the article very nicely puts, after a couple of generations, they could kind of rediscover their heritage. They could more and more... Uh, Finns who have this Sami connection in North America are re rediscovering that and they are kind of rediscovering their roots, they're discovering their shared indigenous identity together making connections with, with the Sami communities here in, 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 the nor in Northern Europe, uh, especially in Finland, but other places in Northern Europe as well, uh, but also making connections with the indigenous communities in North America and storytelling, environmental activism, all these kind of facets are, are, are very much an integral part of this, this Sami experience in North America. So it's a very kind of fascinating article on how people can how people's identities can shape and shift over time, how people can be part of this settler colonization process as both settlers and indigenous, uh, making claims for both sides of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the narrative, if you will. But also, it just shows that the narrative, uh, we shouldn't be stuck with these kind of, uh, of opposites. We, we shouldn't, we should kind of dig in more deep and see how complex histories are, really are. Another major theme that I see running through this this book is the creation of culture and culture of all different kinds as, as a means of building identity and building community among Finnish immigrants. It really ties into this idea of complexity that I, I'm, I'm seeing and, and hearing you both talk about a lot as we as we work our way through this book. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about the role of culture creation, specifically things like literature, um, biography and autobiography, writing, myth making of all kinds, all kinds of forms of culture. Uh, building as, as, as ways that Finnish people were trying to make sense of and find a place in North America as settlers. Yeah, I think culture is a really important theme here. And, and what, of course, we define how to define culture is, of course, different. And the, the Finnish-American culture probably 
in Connecticut is different from Michigan, different from what it is in 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 uh, uh, the, the Northwest, and so on. So against generalizations are difficult to make. But um, if, just thinking about biographies, for example, that is a, a powerful way of making claim as well to the land and to this place where you are. And both Frank Altonen, for example, and Oscar Itoko wrote memoirs and biographies. Frank Altonen is not published. We found it in an archive in, in Berkeley. And he talks in the biography how Finns belong to Sugar Island. And I think this is very common elsewhere as well. I haven't uh, read that many biographies, uh, but I, I could see that in Oscar Itoko's and, and Frank Alden, how they kind of create this narrative of the right, righteousness of Finns being on that particular place. And, and uh, it's interesting how Frank Alden, for example, talks about different race, race, race ethnicities, I, I should call how he talks about what he calls full-blood Indians and half-blood and mixed-bloods and whatnot, and how these are different, how they have different characteristics and so on. So completely racist discussion, uh, considering from our perspective, at least, uh, in 21st century. But this relates to the story of the Finns and how, how we are part of that place. And that relates to the myth-making as well, how the uh, Finnish migration becomes a myth of, of beautiful relations and, and so on. So this uh, also goes to literature. There's, of course, a plethora of Finnish Americans writing about Finnish history and uh, novels and so, so on. And it's all part of that, uh, uh, how would I say, not nation building, but building of self or identity in a new country. Um, maybe, Janne, you would like to elaborate on that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think you make, you make good points that Finns used literature, they used uh, biography to, to, to make claims for themselves within the North American context. They make claims for Finnishness within this North American context. And there's one article in the book by, by Johannes Gurnik who also argues that, that maps did the, much the same, that map making uh, was one way of making space, one of way of making claims that space was available, that there were free land, uh, and also one way of, of making claims that Finns were there, that the Finnish place names, Finnish presence uh, uh, was was integral part of this North American experience. And rather than uh, separate themselves, I think these cultural facets here that we've been talking about just so to so uh, to prove prove that Finns were essential part of this colonization, that they were part of these processes where play, they were naming places, they were creating narratives, they were gaining access to the land, they were making claims that the land was land was available. They were kind of making this this whole silicon narr narration that allowed them to be part of this process, that allowed replacement seem normal. Or, or even the, uh, obvious that allowed them to feel that they had the right to be there, that they were be they were belonging there. Belonging is very kind of important here as well. Throughout the book, Finns belonging is, is is an integral part of what the Finns were trying to do. They were trying to justify their presence. They were ju justify that they were as good colonizers, for lack of a better word, than the other other Europeans were there as well. And of course, also part of this. While it's not implicitly addressed in any of the articles, is, is the claims for whiteness. In the late 1800s, the whiteness of Finns was questioned. Uh, there were questions if Finns were truly European or Asiatic. And, 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 and participation in this North American civilization was one way for Finns to prove their whiteness, to, to make claims for whiteness. And like I said previously, at the time, whiteness was, was power, and, and whiteness was privilege. And, and, and that Finns were trying to kind of even create their place within the European mosaic of North America. They were equal to Germans, equal to equal to Swedes, uh, and, and and so forth. Yeah, and I would continue a couple of a couple of articles in the book by Roman Kushner and and I think it <clears throat> it was Sirpa Salenius who wrote about. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jan. I don't have the book with me here today. But uh, about literature and how how Finns and uh, natives have been portrayed in uh, in literature all the way uh, literature discussing or portraying the 17th century Finnish immigration to Delaware area and and also later on in the Canadian forests and so on. So literature played a, a huge role in in this uh, myth making and 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 also the establishment of Finnishness in North America. Yeah, 
Absolutely, and there's this this historiographies as well. By by we have an article by Johanna Leidonen on historiographies, uh, and and then we have a we have an article by Samika Sakamo on on, on life writing, uh, basically memoirs, and and these these kind of shorter stories on how settlers are making claims through historical historiographical scientific writing uh but also through this kind of more personal narratives of, of their space within these these contexts of, of cellular colonization and yanni you uh you ended up kind of getting the last word in in the book the the last chapter is is an article written by you and i actually thought it served as a, a pretty interesting and and well-placed capstone to to this project that that you both helped create here and it's it's a it's an article about a specific finnish person finnish immigrant and, and his travels throughout the american west specifically so can you talk a bit about this story maybe explain who exactly gustav uh nordenskjold was and how he speaks to not just uh, issues in, in, in the past in indigenous and settler relations, but also to how these stories are still playing out in the present as well. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Gustav Nordenskjöld was, was a scientist, an aspiring scientist in, uh, who went to Mesa Verde in 1891. And he was on a world tour. He was suffering from tuberculosis and he was seeking for a cure. And part of that cure was going to different types of climates. And of course, he came from a very established family. His father was Adolf Erik Nordenschild, a famous, world famous uh, explorer at the time who had discovered the, the Northeast Passage uh, across uh, the, 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 the Arctic Sea. And it, the, the family also had other explorers and, and scientists there. And Gustav was kind of aspiring to make a name for himself. And he stumbled on Mesa Verde, uh, and he saw an opportunity there. Uh, he was in his early 20s. He gathered a large collection of, of artifacts, even including human remains from Mesa Verde, uh, 600 items altogether. He wrote very different kinds of publications of, of Mesa Verde and the, the ancient Pueblon cultures there. And he also tried to make claims that he was, he was, he was kind of recreating this, this history of, of the Southwest where the Mesa Verde exemplified this ancient civilization that the, the current indigenous peoples, the Apaches, Navajos, Utes, uh, had brought down and, and, and there was an era of chaos there and the U.S. and its colonization was bringing light and civilization to this, this, this chaos. But Gustav Nordenschild was a privileged European scientist who basically didn't give a damn about his rights. He was arrested for a while and he, the reservation agent for the southern youths forbid him to dig anything from the reservation and then the local judge also uh, denied Gustav any right to take any human remains out of the country but he did both. Uh, and he was kind of exemplifying this, this. He was a man of his times, in a way. That the, the, the era, the, the European science, many of the European uh, uh, fields of scholarship at the time took advantage of, of of the rest of the world. They took they they saw that they had the right to take these items, even human remains, for scientific study in Europe, that they had the right to collect museum collections of indigenous artifacts, that they had the right to remove these items, who had, the items had been in the Southwest for generations already. Uh, and they also made claims that the, the current Pueblo peoples, while they were perhaps descendants of the, of, of the Mesa Verde people, they were, there was this disconnect there, that the current Pueblos were not really up to the standards of the Mesa Verde people. Uh, and Gustav was, was he, he got his collection, uh, he shifted the 600 items to Sweden, uh, but he was in debt, so he had, to, and, and the Finnish financier came to his help, but both died very soon. Uh, and the collection ended up in the Finnish National Museum, where 90% of the collection still is. 10% was returned in 2020 to the Pueblo people, to the Pueblo delegation led by the Hopi, uh, after a few years of, 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 of making claims for their, their repatriation. The repatriation process is a very interesting thing itself, because it really got going only after the U.S. federal government asked the Finnish government uh, that could it actually happen? Then the Finnish National Museum got 
going. And, but like I said, 10% of the items were returned, especially the, the, to my understanding, all the human remains were returned in 2020 and, and other burial artifacts. But of course, this also speaks to these legacies and durabilities of colonialism we see all over the world today. Of, of the role of museum, uh, the repatriation processes and claims. There have been many repatriation claims throughout Western Europe these days. The British Museum has been uh, receiving those. The new Humboldt Forum in Berlin. There's a lot of debate in Germany on what to do with the colonial artifacts. And there are hundreds, hundreds of, of, of items throughout Germany. Uh, and, and of course, Mesa Verde as, as such is also an interesting place. Of course, it's a very popular national park these days. Uh, I was actually there last week uh, uh, for the second time. The first time was 20 years ago. Uh, and I could still see in the bookstore Gustav Nordenschild's book on, on the, Kilatu, the cliff dwellers of the Mesa Verde. Uh, and, and I took a look at the book and there were still these Gustav's drawings of, of Crania there in the, in the, in the last pages. It, they were not removed. Uh, in, in the latest edition, so that kind of was shocking, in in, in a way. But there's very little else on, on Gustav there in in, in Mesa Verde, and, and the, the Mesa Verde narrative was 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 very different than it was 20 years ago. Today, uh, saw a couple of those films they show for for the tourists there, and there's a lot of emphasis on, on the pueblo perspectives, and the emphasis there is on continuities and connections that the modern pueblos have with the Mesa Verde people. Of course, Gustav Nordenschel was building a very different story of disconnects between the past and the present. Uh, so that was that was fascinating to see, uh, but Gustav Nordenschild exemplifies this 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 what I would call the second wave of decolonization going on in the world. If the first wave of decolonization is the independence process after World War II, when 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 countries in Africa and Asia especially gained independence, our second wave currently ongoing, is, is, is targeting Western knowledge, Western education, Western ways of understanding history, the present and the past, and how we perceive ourselves and our role in the world, and how we could better combat and, and address uh, global inequalities, whether they relate to, to museums and repatriation, or to environmental issues, or, or uh, to statues, or whatever. But it, it is, Gustav is very much part of that, that debate, ongoing, still around the world. And as we begin to, to wrap up here, um, I always like toward the end of my interviews to sort of flip the script a little bit and ask my guests to imagine themselves as a, a reader of, of their book, thinking back on this book from some point uh, uh, in the future, a few years down the line. What would you hope that this reader remembers or comes away from this book understanding about history? What do you think that would be? Well, with this particular book, I think uh, I, I would like to people to understand that history is complex. Human experience is complex, and there are different ways of understanding the world around you by different peoples from uh, uh, representing different cultures, ethnicities, and whatnot. And we may have a kind of theoretical framework set like colonialism that allows us researchers to to focus on these peop, uh, things and maybe challenge some old myths and, and stereotypes and what have you. But it's the stories are not always pretty and they're complicated and there are many different perspectives uh, to to understand, to create a, 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 a you know, story of a people if, or, or a, a, in this case, a group of immigrants. Yeah, you make very good points about the complexity running, and I, I fully agree there. Uh, if I need to say something else, uh, we talked about the, the audience for this book, uh, that we're talking to North American audience and the Finnish audience. I would like both of them to realize that Finns were part of the silicon process, the silicon histories and the present in North America. In all its complexity, that Finns were there. They were part of those 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 complex historical uh, trajectories, uh, and and Finns participated in, in as settlers, as as, as scientists, uh, true literature, uh, map making, all these different facets uh, that they Finns were were a quintessential part. Along many other, there was nothing exceptional about Finns. That also 
would like to make cl claims about. Uh, but things were part of that process. Uh, and also, in a few years down the line, I would hope to see other books on, on the topic as well uh, to come out, that, that this, this would be a kind of an opening uh, to further scholarship. And I trust it is. I, I, I trust there's, there's more, more things to come. I know, I, uh, yeah, I, I hope there is. And then finally, I always like to also get a preview from my guests about what they are working on next. Um, so, Yanni, why don't we start with you? What have you been working on uh, since the publication of this book? What's uh, what's sort of what's coming down coming down the road for you? There's there's quite a lot of things, but, but I can pick up a couple. Uh, I also received a, 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 this quite a large foundation fund from Kone Foundation focusing on Petsamo, the Finnish Arctic settler colony, and I hope to write the first academic monograph of that in, in, in a couple of years. Also, like I said, I went to Mesa Verde last week, and the bookstore didn't have a book on, on Gustav Nordenskjöld at the Mesa Verde. There a modern scholarly work on Gustav Nordenskjöld at the Mesa Verde, and that would be really great to write a, a book, a monograph on, on, on that as well. Uh, so perhaps those two things are are on the top of my my current list, but the the list is long. Yanni, I, I feel like I'm I'm always seeing your name pop up in places. You're a very prolific guy. I've noticed over the years. <laughs> Ronnie, how about you? Yeah, I've got a lot of things. I I got a couple of big projects uh, that ended last year. One on, on the history of the Lakota, and then uh, one on national parks, uh, in a global context, and and. That's something that I'm going to continue with. I actually recently, last week, a couple of weeks ago, got a, a research uh, project funding from the Academy of Finland to look on uh, national parks and indigenous people and looking at different ways of collaboration between uh, administrative agencies of indigenous people in, in North America and Scandinavia. So that is something I'm going to be working on at least for the next four years. And hopefully that will take me to some cool national parks in the U.S. <laughs> I'm sure it's always, well. always sure a good will. excuse to travel, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, yeah, there's a lot Dr. of work. Do Dr. Ronnie Henrik Anderson is Senior University Lecturer of North American Studies at the University of Helsinki. And Dr. Jani Lati is uh, an Academy of Finland Research Fellow also at the University of Helsinki. And together, they are the co-editors of the new book, Finnish Settler Colonialism in North America, Rethinking Finnish Experiences in Transnational Spaces, which came out with Helsinki University Press last year in 2022. Thank you so much for joining me uh, today, both of you. It was great talking to you. Thank you for having us. It was great. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 